What does it take to give every athlete a level playing field? Welcome to the Primer Blueprint Podcast. To be able to compete against each other. From our studios in Malibu, California. Knowing that there hasn't been a tremendously unfair advantage. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast with Mark Sisson. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Mark, how you doing? Thanks for coming back. Um, I'm doing great. It's a little windy out here today, so I couldn't paddle. So uh, here I am in, indoors going to answer some questions. Stuck in the studio. Well, we had an interesting talk last week. If you missed last week's podcast, uh, go back and download it. Uh, but we got into talking about various matters associated with human peak performance and athletic potential and Dr. Timothy Noakes central governor theory and so on and so forth. And I thought we'd pick up that topic on kind of a hot topic in today's uh, uh, athletic world, and that's the effect of doping on peak performance. And the reason I thought I'd chat with you about this, it's an interesting topic, but also you have a long history in, in the doping game. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, actually, my history is in the anti-doping game. Let's oh, be clear Excuse me, that. excuse me, yes. <laughs> um, Based on my um, experience as an as a elite athlete in the 70s and early 80s, and then as a coach of an elite team of triathletes, um, I was co-opted onto a committee to help write the first set of anti-doping rules for the sport of triathlon in 87 and 88. And based on my presentation of uh, that set of rules at a, at a board meeting of, the, of TriFed, which is the uh, national federation in the U.S. for the sport of triathlon, um, I got invited to be the executive director of the entire uh, U.S. Federation in Colorado Springs. So from 89 to 91, I ran what is no, what was known then as TriFed USA, uh, the U.S. Triathlon Federation. It's today's called Triathlon USA. And in that capacity, I then got, again, uh, elected to serve uh, on a small group to write the anti-doping rules for the sport of triathlon worldwide. So we with in conjunction with a uh, friend Craig Massbeck, who was then head of uh, USA Track and Field and uh, who had been a longtime buddy of mine and he was a lawyer, had we, we put together a set of anti-doping rules that became the worldwide set of anti-doping rules for the sport of triathlon um, until the advent of the World Anti-Doping Agency several years later. Uh, and in that capacity, I was in charge of administering those rules. So I had to uh, oversee every hearing where there was a positive test and and get involved in um, adjudication of the outcomes of these and in some cases enforcing the penalties. So I got a really good look at the world of sports performance, peak performance, the intention of athletes in terms of what they were trying to accomplish through performance-enhancing drugs. And it was – all it did was sort of open my eyes to how difficult it would be to actually write these rules, enforce them fairly, adjudicate them fairly, and what a gray area that sports doping became in those days and has become since. Because when we look at performance-enhancing substances, Gatorade is a performance-enhancing substance in some regards. The fact that you could take Sugar and salt in the middle of a race and replace what you'd lost naturally enhances your performance. Caffeine, a cup of coffee, the morning of a race or two cups of coffee before a cycling event has an ergogenic effect. It actually improves uh, fat mobilization. It uh, has a, a central nervous stimulant effect. So, you know, some of these things that we would consider harmless day-to-day -day food groups or 
vitamin mineral preparations or, or substances or supplements actually have an ergogenic effect. The question then becomes, where do you draw the line? And that was really the, the essence of the early days of anti-doping in the sport of not just triathlon, but in track and field and everything else. And unfortunately, in the public's perception, they're seeing a, a, a giant line that many, many athletes are crossing to the extent that we really don't know what's authentic and what's superhuman these days. Correct. And you sort of have to take a step back and you go, okay, what does it mean to be an elite athlete? You know, here you have the IOC with its Olympic Games, or you have the federations or the leagues, Major League Baseball, uh, soccer federations, basketball, and and so forth, holding out this carrot to young athletes with, you know, who are genetically gifted in the first place to say, look, if you work really, really hard, like harder than anybody else, and you do really, really well, and we choose you, you have a chance to make millions of dollars one day. But what they don't tell you is that there are going to be 150,000 kids around the country or a million kids around the world who have been given that same potential opportunity, and they're going to train really, really hard. Well, training for an elite sport, uh, to be an elite athlete in a, in a top sport, is not a healthy undertaking. In fact, it's antithetical to health. And particularly with endurance uh, athletics, with triathlon, with marathoning, uh, 10Ks, uh, cycling, Tour de France cycling and so forth, even swimming to a certain extent, the more you train, the more you compromise your health. And so here we are with this theory that, okay, these athletes are training really, really hard. They must be healthy. They're training to be Olympic athletes when, in fact, the more training they're doing, the less healthier they're becoming. They may be fit. And they may be performing well, but their health is declining. And at some point, at the highest elite ranks, your immune system starts to shut down. Uh, you know, you've got all sorts of issues with inflammation. Uh, you've got uh, – you may have some digestive issues, which is what one of the things I had. Uh, there are a lot of things that can go wrong at the elite level because of the amount of high-intensity training that you're doing. So as an athlete, you're always looking for – a recovery advantage because really training is about not the work that you do to, build, to, to tear yourself down, but the recovery that happens as a result of the hard work you did so that you build yourself back even stronger. And theoretically over time, if you build yourself back strong enough, you can be, you can be in a position to win a gold medal or a world championship or set a world record. So we have all these young people who, are, who get involved in athletic endeavors and attempting to be the best in the world. Um, we've told them if you train as hard as just humanly possible, and in some cases inhumanly possible, one or two of you might make the grade. But the other 150,000 or 2 million of you are not going to make it, and then we can't help you. There's nothing we can do for you. So it's kind of a one-sided, lopsided uh, perception on the, on the part of the, uh, the federations who want these superstars, who are encouraging these people to be superstars. On the other hand, you have all these people who are going, look, if, I've got, if I'm going to compete, I've got to find an edge. I've got to find the secret. I've got to either, either find the right coach or I've got to find the right supplements or I've got to find a way to recover from my, my sports performance. And that's where this whole issue of PEDs come into play. That's where this whole gray area of what is a, a, a sports enhancing, a performance enhancing substance and what isn't starts to come into play. And it becomes difficult to draw where that line is in some cases. Now, you might say, well, okay, people who are using growth hormone or steroids, that's just absolutely unconscionable. They shouldn't be doing that. 
And, and the rule says they should not. And that's, you know, I, I helped write the rule. So I agree with that. On the other hand, if you've got uh, some guy who's, who's trying to do the Tour de France and who's racing as hard as he can 140 miles a day for 20 days in a row and is going to get up every morning and have to do it again, the temptation to use whatever it, he, he can get his hands on to, um, to recover and to be able to, to get back in, in the saddle and do it again today, it's, it's a pretty compelling temptation. So it's, um, it's not really a, a black and white issue, and it gets, it gets really involved when you start looking at some of these other so-called banned substances. I remember I had to take a kid who won a top event in the U.S. He was the Canadian national champion, and he had a cold. And so the night before the race, his father went to a U.S. drugstore and got him some Sudafed so the kid could breathe. The next morning, the kid won the race. Uh, tested positive for pseudoephedrine, and I had to ban him for 90 days, and he almost didn't make it to the world championships because his federation had to honor that that 90-day ban. Now, you argue, okay, well, here's a kid who who had a cold, who couldn't sleep, who couldn't breathe, went to the store, got an over-the-counter medication, tested positive for pseudoephedrine, which is a a mild stimulant, and in a hour-and-a-half, two-hour race, doesn't really have that great an effect. And you could argue that he only, by virtue of being able to breathe a little bit that night and get up the next morning and, and race, he was maybe at, 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 at a baseline equal to everybody else. But because of the rules, I had, to, um, I had to disqualify him from the event and ban him from the sport for 90 days. And the number of times that happened was pretty it – was, um, it was scary the number of times these sort of innocuous uses appeared, and, but we had no, no choice. It's a – what we call a strict liability, guilty until proven innocent. Yeah, it's a tough battle to fight to try to keep a sport clean. And I think you've you touched on a few things I want to uh, reflect, because especially when it comes to public perception of this problem, I think there's a ton of misconceptions. And when you said it's not black and white, I think generally the average uh, sports enthusiast sees this as an extremely black and white issue when it's not. And in particular... Um, I think we can look at these athletes and demand that they are exasperated when we find out that someone's been been caught cheating and we forget sort of the main deterrents are, are kind of flimsy. And, and one of them is like, you know, the morality of asking them to have a, a high moral standard. Of course, they, they exhibit high moral standards in many ways. However, when you enter a, a, a dirty sport such as cycling, um, the morality question becomes very muddled because when, when it's clear that everyone's doing it and it's the only way to remain competitive, uh, it's a big challenge to uh, stand on a high moral ground. The only thing you can do is quit, which is not an attractive option. Yeah, and that, that's the unfortunate story of, of pro cycling is that in order to be competitive, you had to do what everyone else was doing. And, you know, so Armstrong's biggest failing was just not uh, admitting it earlier and just, you know, kind of continually taking people down with him. It wasn't in my eyes so much that he that he used. It was just the failure to admit that that he did it when everyone else is doing it. But the concept that sports is somehow obligated to put forth uh, a morality play for the rest of the world, the the idea that these are, are supposed to be role models, I think that went out the window years and years ago. Sports today is theater. 
especially at the elite level, at the level of the NFL or Major League Baseball or the Olympic Games. This is about people watching television and buying the products that are advertised. This is about high-level athletes being paid millions of dollars because they're entertainers, not because they're uh, outstanding moralists or that they have some ethical story to um, unfold in front of the, the younger people. The papers are full of uh, elite-level, particularly professional athletes who have completely gone off track with, uh, with their place in society and getting into fights and uh, abusing you know, w- whatever privilege they might have had. So to think that this is a morality play is, is just – it's kind of ridiculous. This is really theater. And if you recognize it as theater and you recognize that the person who's consuming this theater is the person sitting at home watching the TV show or buying the tickets to the game. They just want to see blood. They just want to see um, hitting. They want to see world records broken. And, you know, again, not assessing a good or bad a judgment to any of this, I ask you, if, if do you think Major League Baseball would sell one fewer ticket this year if Barry Bonds were still playing? I think the public wants to see records set. They want to see more home runs hit. They want to see – so it's really not – Athletes aren't doing this as a morality play. They're just doing it to be able to, to stay in the game longer. And again, not, not suggesting that this is the way you ought to do it, but if you're a NFL football player and you've been beat up so many times, I would imagine the temptation to use the very same medicines that any poor schlub who walked into an emergency room on a Monday morning and said, geez, I, just, I overdid it this weekend. What do you got for me to get me back to work? It's, it's a little hypocritical to think that we would deny those very same medicines to elite athletes who are punishing their bodies on a regular basis. Well, speaking of the fans buying tickets, I think that's important to reflect on because it's possible or it's, I would argue that we have blood on our hands and we're contributing to this problem because it's true. We want to see home runs. We want to see world records. Uh, I sat in the stands during the 1984 Olympics and listened to 90,000 people boo Carl Lewis because he only took long, two long jumps and assured himself of a gold medal with an incredible 28-foot jump. Um, but they wanted to see him jump more and more because they'd paid for their ticket, while they also wanted to see him win four gold medals. And so the athletes are in this impossible situation where, and in the NFL example, yes, we want to see blood, we want to see hard hits, we don't really care. We're starting to care a little bit about how their brains get mashed up during their careers. But the doping thing just goes hand in hand with the theater and with the continued escalation of the money involved for the, the actual athlete. And also for the owner and for the uh, the fans buying the tickets. Yeah, and the the other interesting thing, or many interesting aspects of this, but one of those is the hypocrisy that a a lawyer who is prosecuting a doping case w- will take Adderall to be able to argue the case with uh, sufficient attention to detail and concentration, and he'll be arguing a case. And this is, these are like literally true stories where. Uh, a lawyer will take a performance-enhancing substance for his brain in order to prosecute an athlete who has uh, been charged with using anti, uh, you know, uh, for violating the anti-doping rules. That kind of hypocrisy goes, you know, just beyond the pale. So there are lots of different levels to this. You know, the the in the in the cycling world, EPO was a good example of uh, a drug that was developed uh, to increase red blood cells in 
uh, patients with anemia or chemo uh, patients. It got quickly uh, subsumed into the endurance community, uh, initially of all things, in the orientation community, uh, which is sort of hiking. Oh, the orienteering uh, folks? Orient- yeah. the orient- orienteering, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, but cycling soon followed. And it became a pretty compelling reason to, to use this stuff to increase the amount of red blood cells to carry oxygen to the muscles and help you burn fat and, and do all the things that you, could, that you could do. But, you know, you, so you say, well, that's really unfair. And I, and I agree, that's unfair. You shouldn't be injecting this hormone that causes you to create more red blood cells. That just doesn't seem to be the right thing to do. And yet what was legal was to spend $20,000 on an altitude chamber so that you could train at sea level all day long and then sleep in a bedroom that had been acclimated to 14,000 feet altitude, in which environment your body produces more EPO and hence more red blood cells. So the effect is the same. You're, you're, you're artific- artificially increasing the number of red blood cells, but you're doing it now you're doing it through a, a loophole in the rule that says, well, yes, you can do it by artificially raising the altitude of your, of your sleeping habitat. But you can't do it through injecting EPO. With that initial, with the, in the initial years of of the abuse of EPO, one of the things that the uh, UCI recognized was that uh, there was a, a a strong likelihood of death if the hematocrit rose above, say, fifty five or sixty. Basically, there, your, your blood would become sludge, and you could and you could and it could clot, and that would be the end of it. So they set a level of um, – they started testing athletes because they didn't have a test for EPO. So they started testing athletes, and they would say, okay, if your hematocrit is above 51% today, you can't race. We're not going to call you a bad guy. We're not going to blame you for anything. We're not going to accuse you of anything, but you can't race. Well, you know, what happens to the poor Colombians who train at – or the, you know, the guys in the Andes who train at 14,000 feet, some of the best climbers in the world – Whose, whose normal hematocrit is 51 degrees or 51 percent. So now here's some guys who came by a, a hematocrit normally because of their genes and because of their training environment. Now they get pulled out of a race that they could have won because of some arbitrary level that had been set that accounted for everybody's involvement in, in, um, at their EPO level. So it became such a mishmash of rules and regulations and this works, but that doesn't. And literally, there was a time at which six cups of coffee was okay, but eight cups put you on the on the list of having abused the substance. Um, we had one of our top triathletes who tested positive for opiates one day, and opiates were were banned from competition. Although there was no real reason to do that in endurance competition because it certainly doesn't help you. And yet, we had to we had to investigate further. Found out she had she had three poppy seed muffins the morning of a race because she was carbohydrate loading and poppy seeds are the source of opium. So those metabolites showed up as, as opium in her, in her bloodstream. So it really, the number of times that we had to look at a case and go, okay, this guy, this guy tested positive for metabolites of nandrolone. And the cutoff was three nanograms, three billion parts, billions of a gram per milliliter or per deciliter actually. And, and he tested it four. So if he'd tested at 2.5, he would have been clean, but now because he's at 2.5 billionths, he would have been clean, but at 4 billionths, he was dirty. That's a rounding error in, in the laboratory. And I started to look at some of the, what happened at the, at, to, the, to the tests in the laboratory. And you think, well, the guy tests positive. That must be a black or white case. 
No. These laboratory tests are literally – they're wavy lines on a sheet of graph paper that has to be interpreted by people with varying degrees of, of expertise. So it's not like, oh, yes, it's a positive or, oh, no, it's a negative. It's like, well, based on where this mass spectrometer showed up, it looks like it should be um, a posit positive for this particular substance. It, it became very complex. Yeah, and I think for the average uh, fitness enthusiast or athlete, it, it seems so uh, ridiculous to, to even imagine putting some drug into your body just to go faster if you're not interested in, in elite performance and all the um, conundrums that you face as an elite. Uh, but it, it should be also noted that, and, and you mentioned this with um, example of football and cycling, this stuff is so unhealthy for your body to perform at the elite level that actually taking the steroids as an NFL player or taking the EPO to super oxygenate your blood as a Tour de France cyclist could arguably be considered less destructive for your health performing doped up rather than trying to perform clean. Absolutely. And that's the nature of particularly endurance events or, or in the NFL. Those, I mean, John, John Madden had a comment one time a while back that just stuck with me. For He said, he said you have no idea of the level of destruction that goes on in that field. He said, you, you play one down in the NFL, you will never walk the same. And that really hit home with me. And if you've, if you've watched these guys play, it's, it's a brutal game. And so to think that you've got, as a team, you've got $50 million invested in a player over the next several years. Are, are you not going to want to take advantage of every possible way to get, not only to get him up and, and functioning from one Sunday to the next, but to improve his longevity from maybe three years to seven years by virtue of what we would call modern medicine. So, you know, I don't want the audience to get the wrong idea. I'm not for cheating in sports, but I am have and have been for the longest time uh, in favor of looking at what we're doing to these athletes and suggesting that, okay, if this is a professional sport and they, they know what they're doing and they're w working with a physician and they're trying to preserve their health and to uh, improve their longevity in the sport, maybe it makes sense to revisit some of these things and set, set some levels that would allow them to uh, access some of the substances that modern medicine has determined actually can help improve recovery, uh, rebuild from injury, and, and have a lot of these um, other maybe beneficial effects in the face of all the destruction that's going on. Oh, you know what just came to mind? Like, I'm going to give you another example. The fact that Tiger Woods would have LASIK surgery to improve his distance vision, it, you know, is that, where does that fall in the spectrum of performance enhancement? You know, think about it. The fact that some guy could have uh, an artificial ligament uh, installed that would make his throwing arm that much better. Where Again, where do you draw the line between what is allowed in modern science and what is perceived by not even so much the public but by the press as being ethically wrong, morally wrong, you know, salacious and worth writing about? Right. And speaking of the press, I think uh, lately uh, everyone's done a good job spinning the concept that 
um, doping is being eradicated. You know, baseball, is, it was ridiculous for a while. They didn't even have any doping penalties prior to 2002, which was about 20 years too late for when we saw the effects of doping first appear in the Olympics with the East Germans. Um, but right now, there is sort of a sense that things are slowing down and cleaning up, and I'm not sure if that's accurate. What do you think? Well, one of the issues with um, doping in sports is that the tests for some of these new substances are always a year or two behind the actual invention of the substances themselves. So when the Balco scandal erupted... That was when Barry Bonds and several other elite athletes in other sports were all traced back to this backwoods laboratory in the Bay Area where this guy had come upon, uh, with the help of inventors, new steroids that were undetectable and mysterious in the, in the doping testing protocol. Correct. So they, these guys invented a new steroid that the, that the standard testing protocol couldn't identify. Well, unless you knew or were aware of the existence of this substance and then decided to, to, um, to create a test for it, it, it was undetected for a couple of years. And it wasn't until somebody sent a syringe to, uh, to my friend Don Catlin at the UCLA lab and said, look, uh, test this because it's a new substance. So somebody basically busted them by sending a, a, a used syringe, and then that was when the, when the test was finally developed. So the, you know, the bad guys are always going to stay one step ahead of the good guys. Um, athletes are always going to look for the edge. That's just – that's the nature of being an athlete. Why – if you could – if you as – as an athlete with lots of money at stake and a, and a, and a lifetime of competition and, and adulation at stake – why would you not want to take advantage of every method? Now, certainly all the legal methods. I mean, athletes are always looking for uh, the next big thing in training uh, and in diet and certainly always have been in supplementation. That's how I got into supplements. As an athlete in the, in the 70s and 80s, I was looking to ways, for ways to be able to come back from a 20-mile run one day and go and repeat it again the next day. And I started looking at supplementation. You know, I looked in those days. It was you know twenty grams of vitamin C and and vitamin E, and there were not that many variations available quite yet. But over the t over time, it became drinks like Erg and uh, uh, some of the sports performance drinks that that emerged. I w I helped develop uh, a product called Carboconcentrate in the mid '80s that became a source of carbohydrate in uh, long events like Ironman. So we're always we're athletes are always looking for that edge and in endurance events and particularly triathlon it, it does come in the form of of nutrition so most ironman triathlons are won or lost based on one's a particular attention to nutrition and if you don't get your nutrition right in that race then somebody who did is going to outperform in the last hour or two of that race and eventually beat you and this is what happened to Polly Newby Frazier one of her uh, more famous Meltdowns happened because she missed an aid station late in the race, and it was that simple. So, so here's an example of an ergogenic aid taking something that's made of carbohydrate or electrolytes on a race course is enough to enhance your performance, and that's really you know that's the that's the nature of of, of where we're at with sports performance these days. Okay, well, it's a pretty complex issue as you've uh, as you've laid out nicely before we before we break on this topic. Um, you actually, right there in your home in Malibu, were witness to one of the most notorious uh, drug trials that we've seen, and that was on 
disgraced Tour de France champion Floyd Landis, a former teammate of Lance Armstrong, who went out and won the tour in his own right after being Lance's protege for a while, and then was uh, subsequently found to have an elevated testosterone level in the middle of the race, which is kind of curious. And uh, what went down at that trial, Mark? Well, it's it's uh, it's called a hearing, not a trial. Um, it's typically the at that level, the court of arbitration which is an international court uh, empowered by the IOC, um, has three judges, uh, three panelists who will hear the case, uh, which is argued by lawyers on both sides. And in this case, it was an eight-day hearing. Um, Floyd had tested uh, for uh, an exogenous form of testosterone. And it was really interesting to watch their hearing from a number of different vantage points, one of which was that his uh, defense attorney, I gave him his first three hearings, uh, he was hired by me to uh, to uh, as sort of a prosecutor in triathlon hearings. Uh, that's Howard Jacobs. And then the uh, chairman of uh, the panel was a friend of mine that I uh, worked a lot with at triathlon. And, of course, a lot of the people who were participating in the hearing itself were from the various labs and so on. But one of the interesting things that came out of that was that the amount of testosterone that Floyd had in his system wasn't particularly high. It was just the fact that he was using testosterone to literally recover from one day to the next. So when some of the initial headlines said, well, he had more testosterone than uh, had ever been seen in a person or, you know, he had enough testosterone to take care of a whole harem. Um, it was that was sort of headlines that that were salacious enough to make people read the article. But the bottom line was his testosterone to epitestosterone ratio was out of whack. And that was a simple test that we did in those days that allowed a more expensive test to happen that would identify what we call exogenous testosterone. So it wasn't that his levels were really, really high. It's that he just had opened the door to examining the source of the testosterone that was in the sample that he gave that day. And it appeared that the source was was exogenous, was from an outside source, and that was done through this laboratory testing. So it was really, it's it's always, there's a lot more going on in each of these tests than, um, than you read about in the headlines. And um, it's again, it's, it's, there's no black or white here. There's no real answer to this. It's an ongoing issue, kind of a fight between what is it going to take to allow these athletes to participate at the highest level and to take care of them versus what does it take to give every athlete uh, a level playing field and to be able to compete against each other knowing that there hasn't been a tremendously unfair advantage Uh, bestowed upon one athlete and not another. Well, that's a lot of fun talk about possibly an unpleasant subject of doping in in sports. And uh, at one point you mentioned how uh, society at large is uh, possibly guilty of a lot of different abuse and the lawyer taking Adderall to prepare his case in the uh, Anti-Doping Commission. So I think uh, next week we should possibly pick up the discussion with some anti-aging strategies that are drug-free because the uh, the anti-aging scene is is pretty much polluted with a lot of drug regimens that are possibly unhealthy and counterproductive but there's a lot of things we can do especially those in the the age group of let's say 40 to 60 that are uh, noticing the effects of physical decline, physical aging, the weekend warrior who's just, you know, beaten up and not recovering very well. And there's a lot of tips that you could talk about to get that person on the right track and kind of slow down that decline associated with chronological aging. Sure. 
Let's so do it. Thanks for thanks for today, Mark. That was a fun little diversion from our usual primal topics, and you can search through the previous 16, 17 shows for all you need to know about all the matters of primal living. But today, a fun podcast, and thank you so much for listening to the Primal Blueprint Podcast with Mark Sisson. I'm Brad Kearns. Until next week. Thank you.